Today, Dr. Carl Salzman lifts the stigma from benzodiazepines to remind us of when they are essential and when they are harmful. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. To benzo or not to benzo? That is the question we posed to Carl Salzman in the July issue of the Carlat Report. And the answer? I hope this interview can teach people not to be afraid of using benzos, but to use them appropriately for appropriate patients at appropriate doses over an appropriate period of time. I think benzodiazepines are still widely used appropriately. They're also widely inappropriately used. That's a separate issue. But if you look at the prescription of antidepressants, the SSRIs were supposed to replace benzos as the primary long-term treatment of anxiety. And in some senses, that's true and good. But if you actually look at the prescribing data, you see that while the incidence of antidepressant use for anxiety increases, the benzodiazepine doesn't actually decrease, or only slightly. So what's the reason for that? I, I'm speculating, but one reason is that the benzos are better than antidepressants for anxiety. Second is they work faster. If you're depressed, you're feeling anxious, you don't take an extra Prozac. Third, they're helpful for sleep. And they may not always be the best drugs for sleep. There's a wide variety of sleep medications, but they are reliable. So you find a lot of people taking their antidepressant, and then they take a benzo. They may take it regularly, or they may take it on a PRN basis. So my sense is that if you actually look at the prescribing, that benzos are still very widely used, and I think that's reasonable. Dr. Salzman is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and past chairman of the American Psychiatric Association's Benzodiazepine Task Force. He was interviewed by Dr. Marsha Zuckerman, who is a clinical assistant professor in psychiatry at Tufts School of Medicine. Dr. Zuckerman serves on our editorial board and trained under Dr. Salzman as a resident at Massachusetts Mental Health Center. So I wasn't going to go there first, but right. why don't I just go there? It seems like there's even more judgment around the use of benzodiazepines, negative judgment now than there was when I was a resident. And as I said in a question, I guess uh, you, you called your lecture in those days, benzos without ears. Yeah, well, I, I, I now use the term benzo hysteria. Yeah. And I think it includes medical benzo hysteria. Yeah. It's very hard to get a doctor to prescribe a benzo. Nurses go crazy if they, uh, or nurse practitioners, if you suggest a benzo. Residents look at you like they want to fire you if you say it. It was somebody I think of as kind of strict, had an op ed in the Globe a while back about how he was horrified that a whole bunch of residents in the ED said, of course I wouldn't give a benzo. That's right. That's right. It's like you don't want to give an opiate to a dying cancer patient who's in severe pain because you're afraid you're going to make them addicted. I mean, it's just nonsense. Now, 
Having said that, I think most of us would agree that some benzo use is inappropriate and it's usually inappropriate to the wrong patient, the wrong dose, the wrong duration, the wrong interaction with other drugs or alcohol or other sedative hypnotics. So we would agree on that. If you take that away and you just look at the legitimate medical use of benzos, these are good drugs and they are effective. We know the pharmacology. We know how they work. We know where they work in the brain. And they're sedative hypnotics, so they can cause a dependence, but it depends on the dose and the duration. Why don't you go ahead and talk about what you see as appropriate dose and duration for benzodiazepines? Well, once you're above two milligrams of a drug like lorazepam or clonazepam, two milligrams a day, maybe three, you begin to think, why does this person need more? Am I missing something? For short-term use, I think it doesn't matter that much. If you're going to get a colonoscopy or have a medical procedure and you're anxious, you don't take Prozac the night before. You take a benzo so you can fall asleep. And then when you get to the procedure, they don't give you an antidepressant. They give you midazolam or some short half-life benzo, and you have your procedure, and then you go home and everybody's happy. That's reasonable. It starts to get more difficult to figure out in chronic maintenance use. And there are many people who suffer from serious chronic anxiety that's not well-managed by antidepressants, and that is well-managed by modest doses of an anti-anxiety such as benzo. And that could be a short half-life, an intermediate half-life, like the old Librium, which isn't used much anymore, or a longer half-life like diazepam valium or clonazepam clonopin. These drugs, the, the half-life does not influence the effectiveness of the drug. It's merely a time factor. We know where these drugs work, and they are usually, with a few exceptions, rapidly absorbed so that when people are anxious and they take the pill, they start to feel better within 20 minutes to a half hour, maybe slightly longer. And that's exactly the appropriate use. Now, when somebody is taking doses and they seem to be going up and up and up, and you're getting calls saying, you know, I'm still anxious and I can't sleep, and how much are you taking? I'm taking four milligrams. At that point, you need to ask yourself medically a question, am I missing something? And bring the patient into the office and do another diagnostic and consider you're dealing with something more than just anxiety. And then there's the issue of benzos as medication for people with serious medical disorders or in pain mm -hmm. or you know agitation, mm -hmm. depending on their age. In each of those cases, there are risks for inappropriate use and drug interaction, but often they're incredibly helpful to people. And then lastly, they're very good for panic disorder and phobias. I know antidepressants are as well, but antidepressants, particularly SSRIs, have sexual side effects. Benzos don't have sexual side effects. Antidepressants put weight on people. Benzos don't put weight on people. Antidepressants can cause orthostatic hypotension. Benzos don't cause orthostatic hypotension. 
As Dr. Salzman was saying there, panic disorder is where benzodiazepines have the most robust evidence supporting their use in psychiatry. Panic disorder is one of the top 10 causes of disability in working age adults. And if your patient is not getting better with CBT or SSRIs, a benzo is a reasonable next step. We are talking about a disorder that is functionally impairing. And I would use a benzo in panic disorder if it improved the patient's functioning. I'll tell patients, only take this if it helps you move forward and do the things you need to, the things that anxiety is getting in the way of. Don't take a benzo if you're staying in bed all day. Two benzodiazepines are FDA-approved in panic disorder, clonazepam, clonopin, and alprazolam, Xanax. And Dr. Salzman explains why fast-acting benzodiazepines like these are better for panic than others. And this gets into a common misconception about benzos. It's not about the half-life. It's about the lipid solubility, how fast it gets into the brain. The half-life is not relevant. What's relevant is lipid solubility. You want a highly lipid-soluble drug that's going to be absorbed faster and get to the receptor site faster. And the high lipid-solubility drugs are lorazepam, alprazolam, diazepam, valium, and clonopin. And so those are also sort of the most popular, it seems That's to right. me. What That's does lipid solubility confer? It confers rapid onset. A low lipid soluble drug, yep. which takes a long time to be absorbed, yep. would not be a good sleeping pill. And what Ox- would you use it for? And what is Ox- a low lipid? Oxazepam, Cirax, okay. is a low lipid soluble drug. Perfectly good benzo yep. if you're giving it on a maintenance frequent thing. But if you're giving yep. it... As an as needed at bedtime, yep. bad drug. That's a short half life drug. Okay. So the half life doesn't indicate. The onset anything. is not related to the half life. Exactly. Okay. Are you getting that? Short half life benzos don't act faster, they just leave the body faster. What matters is how fast it gets into the brain. And on the other side, long half life benzos don't necessarily last longer. They may leave the brain early, before their half-life is up, which is why you'll sometimes see that patients only get temporary benefits from benzos with long half-lives, like alprazolam, Xanax, and diazepam, Valium. Dr. Salzman highlighted oxazepam, Cerax, as the quintessential slow-acting benzo. And he's right. This one takes one to two hours to start working as opposed to about half an hour for most other benzos. But that's not a reason to avoid oxazepam entirely. Oxazepam also has the lowest abuse liability of all the benzos, and the lowest risk of accidental overdose when combined with opioids. Besides the slow onset of oxazepam, which means that it's going to be less rewarding in the brain, There is also evidence from animal studies that oxazepam raises neurosteroids that further block the rewarding properties of drugs of abuse, including opioids as well as stimulants. In one study, alprazolam Xanax made rats more likely to self-administer methamphetamine, while oxazepam Cerax 
made the rats less likely to self-administer methamphetamine. This does not at all mean that oxazepam is safe to use when combined with stimulants or opioids. Not at all, and I wouldn't recommend doing that. It's just good to know if your patient comes to you on those meds together and you're transitioning, say, from an Adderall-Xanax combination, you might quickly transition them to an Adderall-Oxazepam combination while tapering off. But for insomnia and panic attacks, you don't want a benzo that's slow to act. Dr. Salzman illustrates that with an unlikely story of a cross-continental flight. Side note, I was a flight attendant for ANSET Australia before becoming a nurse. I saw a lot, but I've never heard of a story quite like this one. So I was on an airplane flying back from a psychopharmacology meeting in Boston. There were probably about 30 psychopharmacologists on the plane. Okay? The plane takes off, and a young woman, she looked to be maybe 19 or so, 20, and a young man sitting next to her, it's clear that she's upset. Mm -hmm. And as the plane is going, She's getting more and more upset until finally she's moaning, she's sobbing. The boy's got an arm around her. He offers her, to the rest he offers her a drink. She doesn't want to drink. The stewardesses, in those days they were called stewardesses, come by. And, uh, oh, my God, this is a, a pain. She's having a heart attack. And they get on the loudspeaker and say, is there a doctor on the plane? Because there were 30 of us. Only one raises his hand, me. So they're running over and say, she's having a heart attack. And say, no, she's having a panic attack. So what do we do? You were just the right kind of doctor. What do we do? And I said, well, go on the on the horn there and ask if anybody on the plane's got Librium Valium, Cirax, not Cirax, Librium Valium, Xanax, Clonopin. They said, we can't do that. Would you do that? So this is the great part of the story. And I say, I'm a doctor. We have somebody in back in, in economy who's really upset, and we need a benzodiazepine. Does anybody here have any Xanax, any Clonopin, any Valium, or any Ativan? So what do you think happened? 25 people raised their hand. 25 people, hand, hands raise up their hand. So I had my choice of drug. Yeah. This is the teaching point. I want to hear and I, I tell this story when I lecture. So which should I choose? I had all these choices. I chose Valium, long half-life drug, yeah. right? Why would you choose a long half-life drug? Why not Ativan, short half-life drug? I said, yes, but Valium is more lipid-soluble. And this woman is having a panic attack. And we want to get something into her receptor site as fast as possible. Now, the half-life of Valium only matters if you're going to be giving multiple doses, but one dose to half-life will be about four hours, five hours, and it'll start to decline. Anyway, so we gave the girl 2.5 milligrams of Valium. She fell asleep yep. and woke up as the plane was beginning to land. Yep. Turns out she was you know, going to meet the guy's family. They were going to get married. She was away from mother. She had never been on a plane before. Never been in Boston before. Dr. Salzman sure assuages one of my biggest phobias there. 
What's that? That the flight attendant will sound that fateful call. Is there a doctor on the plane? And I'll be the only one. And what good is a psychiatrist when a passenger is having a heart attack or something? Try actually being a flight attendant. Or a nurse. We deal with that stuff all the time. So let me give you some facts. About 1 in 10,000 passengers have a medical emergency on board the flight. And about three quarters of them are fully managed by the cabin crew. We have defibrillators and a good stock of emergency medications on board the flight, often including lorazepam and intramuscular diazepam. The top in-flight medical crisis are chest pain, collapse, asthma, head injury, usually when heavy items fall from overhead storage bins, abdominal problems, low blood sugar from diabetes, allergic reactions, OBGYN, babies are born on planes, and yes, psychiatric problems are also on the list. So don't be ashamed to raise your hand when duty calls. Psychiatric problems are among the most common ones we see in the plane, and your skills may be needed. Just be sure to check how much alcohol the passenger has consumed before giving that benzo. We see a lot of panic attacks as well as disruptive behavior, whether from mania, psychosis, or illicit drug use. As in life, context is everything in medicine. It might seem a little loose to give a benzo to someone who is not your patient on a flight, but the standards of risk and benefit are much different when you're 30,000 feet in the air. Our licenses are granted by society, and it's our calling to take care of people in society. Boundaries are important, but in emergencies, that calling extends beyond the office walls. And that context changes on the ground. Dr. Salzman does not recommend benzodiazepines for patients who misuse opioids, or patients who are demanding, threatening, or running out early, including those patients who call your practice saying they just moved from another state and are about to run out and want to refill before their next appointment. If he does honor that extreme request, he only gives a week's supply. What are there characteristics of patients that you would avoid? For example, would you not prescribe to people with borderline personality disorder? Yeah, I would, I would try hard not to prescribe to borderline personality. I wouldn't prescribe, if possible, to substance abusers, okay. even reformed substance abusers. Is that true that people who have a history of alcohol abuse who are no longer it, drinking, it you would not to? It uh -oh. depends on how long it's been. Okay. Is there a I actually do prescribe to people who are now in AA and right. are sober. But um, how do you, so how do you, I mean, if we can get some how-tos out of this. Well, I think one of the how-tos is how angry is the patient and how demanding is the patient. Patient says, I want my clonopin. Yeah. You know, my doctor won't give it to me anymore yeah. and I want it and you got to give it to me or else. Mm -hmm. Things like that. And then people will say that. One, one patient in this guy's office almost got violent. The secretary out of the waiting room said, I'm going to call the police. No, you can't do that. And I think we've all experienced patients yeah. who... And I, I know I know psychiatrists who've been hit in emergency rooms when they say, we're not going to give you any clonopin. You know, these are obviously a, a group of people who should not get benzos. The character disorder patients, which you mentioned, borderline mm -hmm. patients, are potential abusers. And in my lectures, I say the, the potential abusers are substance abusers and 
personality disorder patients. I think what you say about being angry and unhappy and taking clonopin to feel better is interesting. In the case of the patient I'm thinking of, it doesn't make her feel better, though she wants it. That's right. Um, so what if it comes. does make them feel better? Well, then they start to increase the dose, and pretty soon you have somebody taking 10 milligrams of clonopin. And why do they increase the dose? Is it because they're developing tolerance or because they want to feel better and better and think Because more their happy? life is not getting any better. Okay. Still getting divorced. They've still been laid off. They're still right. stuck with COVID. You'll learn more from Kyle Salzman in our online interview. Do benzos cause dementia? How do you use them safely in the elderly or in patients with a history of alcohol use disorder? Which benzo is best for which situation? How do you taper off a benzo? And which medications help soothe benzodiazepine withdrawal? And we close with three offers for you. Want CME for this podcast? Click notes at the top of the podcast screen and follow the link. Want to subscribe to our CME journal? Google the Carlat Report and use the promo code PODCAST to get $30 off your first year subscription. Want daily updates on practice changing research? Follow Dr. Aiken on LinkedIn or Twitter at ChrisAikenMD. Let's see. Last week, he posted on a new kind of fatty acid for mania. The generic debut of the Lazadone Vibrid, an herbal therapy for OCD, and an abbreviated version of DBT for borderline personality disorder. 